countdown to the last comic shop in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Hey, hey, it is now time for the last comic shop. So is that actually the open? It's, I don't know, I wanted to do something different. Yikes. Mm. It gets boring saying the same thing over and over one. Why do you think I'd start doing that live from, you know, Stan's Barber Shop? <laughs> yeah, um, I guess we're opening the shop up. Yeah, for <laughs> the new people we didn't and, and, scare and, and away. People, people who are turning around and leaving. <laughs> right. You guys are harsh. Why can't I have some fun? You guys get like days off. And- That's not a day off. That's striking. That's different. <laughs> The host with the most, Andy Larson, he wants to have some fun and not get cut down so much by his loyal co-hosts, Chad Smith and J.A. Scott. Come on, guys. You know, it's 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 tough filling these shoes because, you know, I have to wade through a lot of stuff. On but one thing that we're not waiting through today is these fantastic interviews, as you may or may not know, a couple weeks ago. We went to Baltimore Comic-Con, Chad and I, and we interviewed a ton of people. It was crazy. Chad, I think we started off. Yeah, I think as of Friday, we had two. (laughs) And we had a lot of people telling us, check back on Sunday, check back on Sunday. We're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's just the polite way of them giving us the brush. But it turns out, by the time we checked back on Sunday, we, uh, we had quite a few. Yeah, 19 in total. So, yeah, we got the first four done in a show a couple weeks ago. So if you haven't listened to that episode, go back to the archives. Check out the, I think it's the November 8th episode of The Last Comic Shop for great interviews from Russ Braun and Mark Morales and Gene Lun Yang and Fred Van Lenty and Ryan Dunleavy. And uh, on today's program, we're going to have even more interviews for you. Some wonderful talents such as the absolutely wonderful and gracious Louise Simonson. So happy to talk with her. That was a wonderful, wonderful interview, as well as Ted Sikora, uh, who's actually from our backyard over there in uh, Cleveland, Ohio. I wonder if he read the Harvey P. Carr book. And uh, he's from Hero Tomorrow Comics, and he's got, uh, I talked to him about Apama. And finally, we've got Riley Brown, our one show that we did all about Batman Fortnite Zero Point. He did the art for that. So all of those things coming up later in the show. But first, before we get to pleasure, it's time to get done with business. And our business is always recapping weekly polls, or at least it's J.A.'s business. He's the one that's nice enough to go out to Last Comic Shop every Thursday and post a weekly poll that all of our fans can vote on. And uh, we feel it's uh, our obligation to come back on this show sometimes and actually recap them. So, Jay, I, it's a short poll recap this week with only four polls we're going to be uh, looking at. That is correct. Four polls. Though we are going to uh, kick off looking at the previous poll recap because the last poll from the previous recap and the first poll from this recap are linked. Oh, all right. So let's rewind to previous poll recap. So. Back in time. The last poll was Best Marvel Monster. And you had your choices Werewolf by Night, Morbius, Fin Fang Foom, or Man Thing. Man Thing won it. The first poll in this recap is Best DC Monster. 
Oh, okay. No, I, I like how you're doing this. So, uh, what were the choices for best DC monster? Solomon Grundy, Man Bat, Swamp Thing, or Frankenstein Agent Shade? All right. I do remember some folks uh, giving us a little bit of uh, shade are themselves by not including Etrigan the Demon. Hey, look, there's only four <laughs> slots. And that rhyming is just annoying. Scram, Demon. <laughs> Get lost! Here's some holy water. Wh- who won this poll, J.A.? Uh, it was Swamp Thing by a landslide. So right. Swamp Thing and Man Thing will have to go up against each other at some point. We'll just have a, a mono-e-mono poll. The battle of the biggest things. Yeah, maybe Ben Grimm has to interject. But no, I, I feel like the Heap should be the special guest referee in that. Because like yeah. he was the grandpappy. Of all those muck monsters. Chad, who did you vote for? I did not vote for Swamp Thing. Oh, um, I believe I was blinded by the excitement of recently picking up the action figure of one Solomon Grundy born on a Monday. So that's what I went with. Yeah, no, that's that was my pick, too. Great minds think alike on this one. And uh, I just love the fact that he was a member of the Legion of Doom. He's the first one that I think of out of that four. Although there's an awesome episode of Batman the Animated Series with Man Bat. Uh, it was one of the first episodes I ever saw of that animated series, and I loved it. Jay, who'd you vote for? I went with Swamp Thing. You can't go wrong with Swamp Thing. There's lots no, of great he... Swamp Thing stories out there. I feel like he's like DC's Daredevil, where they just let good creative teams run wild on Swamp Thing. And so every now and again, you get magic there. Yeah, and and he, and he has had a pretty historic career. I mean, even as far back as before the Alan Moore stuff, like you have the Len Wein, Bernie Wrightson, and Bernie Wrightson's Swamp Thing is gorgeous to look at if you've never had an opportunity to read some of that. And Sneaky Peek Trivia for today's show, what comic uh, celeb will be interviewing today appeared on the cover of the first appearance of Swamp Thing? Oh, yes! Think about it, folks. And think about this. What was our next poll, J.A.? Favorite... JSA member. Who's your favorite member of the Justice Society of America? Oh, this was the lead up to Black Adam. Yes. uh, This was actually a a really hard poll for me because I think there's two folks on this list that I actually have previously said that I love. Yes, you said you like Dr. Fate and you also like Hawkman. Okay, who else rounded out that for? Uh, Green Lantern or Power Girl? Oh, Boob Window. I thought she was going to get more votes. She did not. She did not, surprisingly. And I I did find out in an interview with Jerry Ordway at Baltimore Comic-Con that he loves to draw uh, Alan Scott, although he thinks his outfit is, it's not really good for his weakness. Like, his weakness is wood, and, like, he has one of those high collars, so somebody just can come up behind him with a baseball bat and (laughs) ruin his day. Any case, who won this? Dr. Fate saw it coming and took home the prize. Okay. Is that who you voted for, Chad? Oh, yeah. That has to be one of the coolest costumes in all of comics with the shiny, like, gold chromed out. Like, oh, it's just fantastic. I think it's the one time that, like, DC does it better than Marvel. Like, I, I prefer the look of Dr. Fate over Dr. Strange any day. Like, I never honestly liked Dr. Strange's look. I, I actually prefer him when he wore that mask for like a hot second. Really? I think yeah. Doctor Strange fits what he does, but it's just not as cool looking as Dr. Fate. <laughs> Who did you fool for, J.A.? I went with Dr. Fate. 
Okay. Is there a Dr. Fate action figure with the, like, vac-metalized helmet? I don't think the Superpowers one had the vac-metal. And there have been Dr. Fate action figures, but not many with the shiny chrome. Uh, yeah. Chromed out gold. It's a missed opportunity. I, it is. It is a missed opportunity. So if you're listening, toy makers, I'm sure Chad would buy it. Not to say that he wouldn't buy an action figure anyways. But if <laughs> you really want to convince him, give you his hard-earned dollars, uh, make a vac metal Dr. Fate figure. I was surprised uh, Hawkman. That's who I voted for, believe it or not. I like Dr. Fate, but I still voted for Hawkman. And I do agree that may, could have made him look real stupid in that movie, but he ended up looking pretty cool. It was one of the high points of Black Adam. So what was the next poll, J.A.? While we're talking about random guys, random DC hero movie. Who has not starred in a movie would you like to see in a movie? So is it Martian Manhunter? Is it Plastic Man? Is it Nightwing? Or everyone's favorite, Booster Gold? Yes. This was kind of a little bit of a backhanded compliment to <laughs> It's Black Adam, wasn't it? It's acknowledging that if they can make a Black Adam movie, they should be able to make one of these movies because <laughs> Hollywood's just throwing stupid money after comic book characters at the moment. All you need is a megastar that says, I look like that person. Make a movie out of that. So uh, that begs the question then, who would be Nightwing? That's the winner of the poll with 39%. Who is looking like nightwing who's the star that's gonna helm that ship oh boy gosh who do you think chad who looks like nightwing yeah i don't know i i'm not much of a casting agent i'll be honest zach efron very handsome zach efron is you need a young up-and-comer with a a big juicy butt (laughs) what the ladies are looking for out of a nightwing movie i am really upset that we never got a joseph gordon levitt nightwing because they teased it at the end of dark knight rises he finds the Batcave. Christian Bale, uh, Batman yeah. leaves him all stuff, and like, and his he name was Robin all along. <laughs> he would have been a great Nightwing or slash Robin or somebody, but they never followed through with that. He was never better than when he was in Third Rock from the Sun. That's all I'm gonna say. <laughs> wow, he's a great actor, and uh, I, I love a ton of his movies. I, I think back to Five Hundred Days of Summer, but anyway. All these guys have passed now. You need somebody with that youthful, like, late 20s, early 30s. Well, they uh, got to be young because you're going to put together, like, a three to five movie run. So, you know, they've got to be able to play the same character for at least 10 years. Uh, has anybody watched the HBO show? No. Titans? Yeah, me either. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not down with that show for some reason. It just never struck my imagination but one thing that did strike my imagination is our fourth and final poll so ja what's that oh this one was squarely aimed at chad so favorite new man not named magic because obviously she's the best so is it Uh, cannonball is it warlock is it danny moonstar or is it cable i threw that in for the uh the rob live <laughs> and cable didn't even he wasn't even in the top two because there was only a top two right like this was like a two-horse race that never there was never a clear winner right that is correct cannonball and danny moonstar took it home they share top honors with 33 percent of the vote warlock i thought would have gotten more love no love for the techno virus 
self-friend warlock didn't make it that far but uh danny and sam they both led the new mutants they've shared that role why not share win in the poll yeah i guess i mean i i won't lie i have been converted over that there's nothing better than just walking up to somebody and say you know what i'm invulnerable when blasting Honestly, you got to do with a southern accent and everything. That's all part of the Sam Guthrie charm. He's invulnerable. He's he nigh was... invulnerable. I remember <laughs> up, though, and being like, who's this cannonball guy? And I thought he was like a second-tier player in that whole New Mutants universe because they, they put Cable out front and center, right? When, when Rob took over the book, it was all his guys. They put them all front and center. And like Cannonball, who had been around for like years, was like in the background, like, I'm the cool guy that flies. Question was Rob Liefeld gave him his due. He made him an external. Uh, as a reader in the 90s, there was that issue right after Executioner's song where Cannonball stands up to Professor Xavier and he's talking about, you know, the fist. X-Force, how they're supposed to be more aggressive, and like the fist could also be used to protect and he opened his hand and there's a little tiny mouse in there. It was awesome! Won my respect, and Professor Xavier's as well. I'm just amazed that uh, we didn't have any uh, chirping from the peanut gallery on, where's Boom Boom? I need my Boom Boom! (laughs) I do like Boom Boom, but she's not in the top four! Come on! She's like Sunspot! Sunspot belongs on a New Mutants team, but I, I'm never going to vote for him as one of my oh, favorite. Man. But Sunspot, Sunspot looks so cool. <laughs> Kirby Crackle. And that was another great interview that we had at Baltimore Comic Con with Bob McLeod. And he said that the worst thing about drawing Sunspot was all the Kirby Crackle. Like it took him forever to draw the little dots around, you know, in the aura. And I was just like, yeah, that would piss me off. <laughs> <laughs> if I had to oh, you can get it. away totally with worth it. Yeah, but you can also get away with not having to worry about defining any of his muscles because the entire center of his body is black. <laughs> He's just sleek. It's like black suit Spider-Man. I think some muscles would be beneficial. I mean, it worked for Venom in that costume. He had nothing but muscles. So, <laughs> any case, yeah, I've been talking a lot about the interviews during these uh, poll recaps, and uh, I think it's about time that we got to some of them. So, right after these commercial breaks, we'll be right back with the first of our wonderful interviews for today with Louise Simonson. Uh, but make sure that you vote uh, in some of our wonderful polls every single week by going out to Last Comic Shop out on Twitter every Thursday. Coming up next, some interviews. Hey everybody, I'm Amber. And I'm Maddie. And we're Witches Witches Talking Tarot. And this season, we've got for you ghosts, cryptids, conspiracies. Oh my. Check out what role we cast Emma Robertson on our myth episodes this season. Yes. (laughs) And in addition to our myths, we will be bringing you the holidays. Because we may or may not have uh, missed one this last season. I guess you'll have to listen to the last episodes to check it out. And then catch all our new episodes coming up every Tuesday and Thursday on your favorite podcast platforms. And see us on YouTube. Come and sit with us for a spell. Hi, I'm Kevin DeCristofano. And I'm Sean Flanagan. And we are the Ninja Turtle Nerds, your weekly podcast covering the Ninja Turtle comic book series one issue at a time. Plus the video games, the cartoon show, the VHS tapes. If it's Ninja Turtles, we'll cover it. Ninja Turtle Nerds is available wherever you get your podcast. 
We're here at Baltimore Comic Con with the wonderful Louise Simonson. Thank you so much for taking just a few moments to talk to not only Chad and I, but also all the last comic shop fans that have just found your work recently or have been fans for many, many years. I mean, you've written so many good things over the years and been involved with so much wonderful stuff. So the question I wanted to ask you, though, is do you remember the first comic book you ever read? Oh, gosh. The first comic book I ever read might have been a Lone Ranger comic. Okay. This is, I'm very, 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 very old. (laughs) And um, there were no comic shops that I knew of, because I was just a little guy, little kid at that point. Right. And there was a, was it Walgreens? Maybe it was a Walgreens. And they had a spinner rack. And when my mom would go shopping, I would gravitate toward where the comics were and I would read the comics off the spinner rack. They didn't have superhero comics. Oh, actually they had the occasional Superman. Right. I found Lois Lane very annoying because she kept (laughs) trying to prove that Clark Kent was Superman. And really I wanted her to get out there and get some some reporting done. This is, this is again, again a, 50s, a 50s Superman story, so um, a guy's idea about what a 50s Lois might do. Right. So I was very perturbed at Lois, so I, I, but I, I, think, I think I read Lone Ranger first. Okay. So you kind of came in a little bit after, like, all the EC comics and, like, kind of, like, the seduction of the innocent and I all that. Where, would, like, did not see an EC comic until, I think, it's seduction of the innocent had happened. Right. And anything that wasn't a clean comic. That's why I was asking, because you said that, you know, it was, like, a couple, like, the Lois Lanes and the... And the and oh, the, yeah, it was, it was Brothers of the Spear and... Silver, the horse had his own comic book. <laughs> you know, sure he's a very interesting horse. He was an interesting horse. The first horror comic I saw, the first EC, I was like twelve or thirteen. Okay. The comics were in a box under one of my friend's beds. They had belonged to her brother. Okay. And she pulled she pulled them out, and I remember reading the Wall- Wallywood story. I don't remember the name of it now. But it was the one where you have these two, these these two old guys having dinner, okay. and of course there were craters all drawn all over everything. I went, my little mind was blown, and then by the end of it, one of them was gone. Yes. And they didn't remember because the aliens had come and carried him off. Oh yes. And I, it blew my little kid mind. I mean. Right. I was not a sophisticated child, well, and it was like, whoa, something like that could actually happen. That is the coolest. And that, I've been looking for aliens ever since. And yeah, I never the, seen one. That, that EC Comics twist at the end. It was yep. just like a Twilight Zone episode. Yep, I the, loved it very much. Bill like Gaines that. insisted upon that twist in every single loved issue. Loved it. Yeah. Loved it. So I'm curious, how do you go from picking up those comics at Walgreens to? Oh, I didn't pick them up. I read them for free. I had well, my, allowance, back on the rent. my allowance was five cents. You could get a comic for five cents, or you could get a double scoop ice cream cone for five cents. I I went to the library, and my mom took me to the library every week. I read as many books as the library would let me take out every week. And my sisters, I had three sisters, we all would get ten, I think, was the maximum. Each of us would get out ten books. I mean, I was the oldest, so I would get the older ones. Right. But my little sisters were very smart. So they could read my books, and of course I could read theirs. Right. So we had 40 books to read, and then the next week my mom would take us to the library again. Okay. So I didn't, I didn't pay for my comic books. 
there you go. I paid for the ice cream. <laughs> anyway, but aside from that, what was you actually had a legitimate question. Well, what no, was it? I was going to ask because is, is it true you were the inspiration for was it House of Mystery? 87, the cover. How do you go from that little girl to oh, House of Mystery? You live in the right apartment building. <laughs> <laughs> but what inspired you to get into the comics book or comic book industry uh, as a professional? Well, when I came to New York, I wanted to get into publishing. And I didn't know quite how to go about it. Back in the olden days, before you were born, um, when you wanted to get a job, you would go to a, an, an agency with, and they would have a list of jobs, job openings, and you would apply, you know, they would send you places. Right. right. They sent me to several places, one of which was a company, a clothing company, where I, they, they, they thought I would be good at modeling, like, size 8 pants or something, size 6 pants, I don't remember, I was skinny then. And um, I got offered the job, and I thought, I don't, I, I just had visions of these old guys, like, pinching my bottom. Oh, jeez. Right. Oh, look. Look, look at those cute. Let's just look at... Oh, no. I said, no. No, no, no. Then I got sent to a publishing company, a magazine publisher. I, I was sent to the distribution department. Okay. And it was publishing. So I, I was in. So yes. I said, okay, I'm, I'm taking that job. And um, I was doing that work. I'd, I got, Then they, they moved me over eventually to advertising promotion where I did... I wrote stuff and I did paste-ups and mechanicals and stuff like that. Okay. Michelle Brand, who was eventually Bernie Wrightson's wife, okay. uh, worked at Warren Publishing. Okay. And she was my friend, because I knew people in the comics industry in my area. And um, she said, there's a job opening at my company, and it pays better than your job. Oh. Nice. And I said, okay, I'll apply. And I went over and applied, and I got the job. It was in their production department. Okay. It turned out I was terrible at production <laughs> I was I was really I was not good at it anyway maybe I wasn't terrible okay awful I was maybe not terrible and You're um, being too hard on yourself right exactly but I was a pair of hands and they, and I could do a lot of different kinds of things some right. of them better than others um, and they said you know they we need somebody to write advertising copy because Warren had Captain Company with the, you know, the ads for our monster masks and things. And I, I'd say I can do that. Uh, letters, pages, I can do that. This okay. and that. Eventually, after two months, they they finally got me out of production. I'm sure they were glad and got <laughs> and bound, they created an assistant editor position for me. That's awesome. And, and you... once I started working in comics, I didn't want to do anything else. Yes, that's fantastic. And you have your career has been varied and just incredibly successful one of the things we've met a number of the creators of the Superman books and you were a, a creator around the time of the death of Superman oh yeah could you talk to us a little bit about what it was like to be in that office and to be part of the, like creating those stories we, we heard that it wasn't really a well thought out plan that it was well it wasn't as I remember it and honestly when you talk to different people you will get it's like Rashomon you're going to get different <laughs> versions of the same thing Dan Jurgens and was we were doing an interview with Dan and Dan had a completely well yeah different it's it's kind of like a stew that's actually why we're excited because we've talked to Brett Breeding we've talked to a lot of different folks that have yeah, had like these way. stories about how it happened so I, right. what are so, your ingredients to the plot my ingredients to the plot are and you may take this with a grain of salt that they deserve because it was a long time ago and everybody else remember some people remember things differently we had spent some time creating the scenario for a year's worth of material okay on superman with every year 
we would have a su giant Superman meeting okay. in which the, the writers, the artists, the colorists, the letterers, the editors, we would have this giant meeting and we'd all sit around a table and bring our ideas. Yeah, yeah but you and were doing those triangle books where everybody was sharing right, storylines. That was so that's exactly right. right. Sort of weave together a, a general movement of stories throughout a year's worth of four and then five books. And then, as I remember it, Jeanette Kahn came down and said, oh, you can't do that because we have a TV show coming up. Yes. Lois and Clark, you've heard this version. Right? I've heard, I've heard okay. parts, Okay. but I want to um, hear yours. All right. Well, then, it's nice to know that somebody at least has the same memory of it I do. <laughs> um, our scenario involved Lois and Clark being in, getting engaged and getting married. Right. Yeah. So we've got a year's worth of materials. I think I remember it as two days worth of, of doing work and writing things on boards and, you know, arguing about storylines and stuff. And Janet says, you can't do it. Oh. And we said, oh, bad word. And then, <laughs> that's because I don't know who's listening to this. And then we had another day, I think, as I'm remembering it, but who knows, to get a completely different year's worth of material wow. done. So Jerry, as always, said, what are we, we what, oh, goodness, what are we going to do? We could do this, we could do that. Let, Jerry says, let's kill him. And we, as he did every, every year. And we said, yeah, yeah, <laughs> let's kill him. We had different reasons why we thought this was a good idea. Okay. I mean, my, my reason was that I wanted the world to see what it was like without Superman. Yes. To, because we got a lot of, you know, even though the books were doing you know, pretty well for DC books, even right. with, without the death, we, we would hear things like, oh, Superman's so old and we always know what's going to happen. He's been around so long. He's boring. You know, we want, right. you know, this death and destruction. Early 90s, and, yeah, people wanted right. extreme. Right, exactly. That was the style. And um, I, I like calling people on things like that. <laughs> So that was my idea, why I thought it was a good idea. Right. No, um, other people had different reasons for it. I think some people thought that it would be fun to just do the, with the how he died. And I thought it was more fun to do the world without Superman. Right. I, I agree that it's almost like a trilogy of series, right? You've got the death of Superman, and then you've got Funeral of a Friend. Right, exactly. Which is sometimes the one that's overlooked. But I think it's the more interesting of the chapters because right. it is the world without Superman. Like, right. And then you've got the four Superman, yeah. Oh, yeah. The, the, those yeah. guys. But, but how it, it allowed everybody to personalize it. Like, it what does Superman did. mean to you? And, right. And so did that happen with you? Did you, like, retrospectively look back at yourself and go, what does Superman mean to me as a person or a world no, without I somebody think, like that? I, you know, I never wanted to have a world without Superman. I, for me, I didn't have to look back and think, well, what, what would it be like or anything like that? I, I thought it would be a bad idea to have a world without Superman. I wish I could use some Superman in this fixing things going on right oh, now. Obviously, we yes. all could. But I did want to show a world without Superman and, and what he had meant to people. And that seemed to, the death of Superman was a big deal. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it was a bigger a deal than... moment. Yeah, it was a bigger deal than any of us had thought that I think that it would be. Because I've killed characters before, you know, I'd ripped off their wings and done terrible, right. monstrous, horrible things to them. And, it, you know, people think it's kind of cool sometimes and sometimes they don't even notice. Right. But I, I still hear about an X-Men, poor dead Doug. I hear about Doug 40, 45 years later. I'm still hearing about Doug. 
at the X office. You had such a hand in the X office when I was becoming a reader. And uh-huh. so I was wondering if you had any fun stories about working with Anna Senti or Chris Claremont or oh gosh, I'm sure with your husband uh, on X Factor. Does anything stand out from your, your oh, X you know, office days? The whole days? thing does. I mean, honestly, working with Anne, you know, Anne says that I taught her everything that she knows about working, I don't know, in X-Men or something, or comics or Marvel or whatever. She didn't need me to teach her anything. She was such a good instinct for that stuff. She just knew. So sometimes you are handed assistants, because mostly you don't get the chance to hire them yourself. Right. You know, you're handed assistants, and sometimes you really click with them, and sometimes you don't. I mean, I had some, had some really great assistants. Danny Fingeroth was really fun to work with. Okay. And Annie was great. And, and, and Annie was also, but when she came in as my assistant, I had been thinking of going freelance. I had been getting, I did, had written Power Pack. Right. And then I think I was offered X Factor after, I did offered some other stuff. Okay. And then X Factor as a regular gig. Right. And I, I found that writing things and edit, uh, editing was too easy. It had gotten a little boring for me. <laughs> you were too good and, at it. And it was partly because I had such great teams on everything. Yeah. I didn't have to, I don't know, help them nudge them. Occasionally somebody would need a little help or nudge on uh, some direction, but it was not the least bit onerous. I was told by one of the, our finance guys who were supposed to, they, they did one of these I don't know, studies where they count, you know, how many pages everybody does and right. how long it takes them and whether you show up on time and I don't know what it was, some some stupid thing. And they, they told me that I had more I was producing more pages per month than anybody else. Wow. It was easy for me. I have the Conan books too, which is that magazine, so there's a million pages right yeah, there. You're making everybody look bad. Right. No, I didn't I don't I'm not sure of that. <laughs> but at least when I showed up at 10 o'clock instead of 9, I didn't get in trouble. They said, you just keep doing what you're doing. That's oh, fine. Which was very nice. Now, do you have a favorite storyline from when you were writing New Mutants or Power Pack oh, or something that stands out uh, X Factor? My favorite storyline from New Mutants. There are two of them. I like the poor dead Doug storyline. <laughs> and then the story where Warlock doesn't understand. You know, he's an alien. He doesn't understand right. death. And in his culture, you could give energy to someone else. Yeah. I'm tearing up just thinking about I this. Know. I remember this story. I know. It's sad. So he he takes Doug's corpse out of its coffin and carries it around, trying to convince him that coming back to life is a good idea. Now, honestly, Chris had done a story where, or maybe it was me, I can't remember who did it now, where, <laughs> obvious to us, Right. that Doug had the transmode virus and that really you probably could bring him back to life. Right. Those seeds but, of the planet. But it never, nobody ever did it. It was so weird. You know, they just left him. I, oh, Bob Harris hated him. <sighs> okay. This is a story, this is, was told to me. Bob Harris did not tell me this story. I was told this story that after I had left the book, Bob actually had Kitty or somebody go down and look in Doug's coffin to make sure he was actually really dead. Oh or at my least goodness. To, I don't know that this isn't true, but it, that cracked me up because oh I thought that sounded about right. Isn't that funny? It is, it is, but it, it reminds me so much of like being a young kid. And I remember I learned about death from Mr. Rogers, right? right. He, he was like, oh, okay, yeah, here's, the, like, here's the goldfish and like, you know, this is something tight. But you would, you would imagine like a kid, if your goldfish died, you would carry it like, 
it's going to wake up eventually. It's going to wake up. Right. And like, that's the same thing with the warlock. He's going right. to wake up. He's right. fine. Right. You're I just, okay. if I show him enough stuff. Right. He's going to be okay. And yeah. so like, again, one of the things that we talk about all the time is the fact that like comic books, when we were growing up, were written for all ages. They were. Whether six or 60, every, you, you kind of wrote to, that everybody can enjoy it. And there was a little piece for everybody. And Yeah. People and read them I, at their own level. That's what I wonder, I love about your about. work is there are notes for everybody. You'll read that Warlock uh, exchange as a six-year-old, different than you will read it when you're right. you know, 46 and you've gone through some stuff. Yeah. So uh, just kudos to that. Well, that, thank that's, you. A, that's, that. that's something that means a lot to me as, as a comic book reader over the years. And I wish yeah. I wish that showed up a little bit more because nowadays sometimes they read they write comic books just for us. Right. And we're like, what about my my kids? I like, know. Where are the spinner racks for them? Everybody that I talk to says I got my first comic off of spinner racks. I got mine. I know. Put them in places where they can pick them up. That's just uh, I, I'm I'm just going yeah. down my rabbit hole. Yeah. I I agree with you. I I think that it was to the detriment of comics when they became so very exclusively comic shop driven. Um, I know Power Pack lost sales at that point. You know they because everybody all the kids were buying stuff off spinner racks. I'm still waiting for the Power Pack movie. I know that was one of the ten things in the initial Marvel pitch. You know the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I know it was, and every oh every five years I hear from somebody that a new screenplay has been written, and it's yeah, and then it's nothing happens. Oh. I and uh, Disney has it now. Right. And I'm not sure that's going to be good for Power Pack because Disney has a lot of kid movie possibilities out there. Oh, that's true. And I mean, so I, and I don't know if they, like, getting the, the depth that you guys had in Power Pack yeah, we'll, is something we'll, they'd be interested in doing. Yeah, we'll but, see. I have no idea. I don't know. Yeah, you oh, know. Spring's Eternal. Yeah, it does. Well, one last yes. book that I want to talk about with you is one of my favorites, and it was from, uh, I think, a little bit later on. It was uh, Galactus the Devourer that I think you did with oh, John, John Bushima with Bill Sienkiewicz Inks. Right. And it's just like... So you got not only John, but then you got Bill Sienkiewicz also working yeah. on that book. And it's it's an amazing book. And I try to tell people about it because it was just like, this is the book where it's like Galactus is some sort of like addict or something. Like he goes off the reservation. Yeah, we, go, we went off the reservation. He's no longer like Trial of Galactus where it's like everything he does is well-intentioned. No, he just wants to eat planets for the heck of right, it. Right, right. And like Silver Surfer, like a mad dog, he has to put him down. Right. And uh, I just wanted to pick your brain about where that idea came from and like oh, and I, like working with John and, and Bill. I, I, uh, first of all, I never know where ideas came from. I'm sure they came. it came from something. Oh, oh, I know where that came from partly was that in John Byrne's Galactus story, right. The Trial of Galactus, yes. everybody heard what the explanation was, but it, was, it blew their little minds and they couldn't remember afterwards what his purpose was. Right. And I said, screw that. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, John. John is, John is we love, I love John, but um, I really, that annoyed me. <laughs> and you have the power to do something. I, I did. Retconning. I did. And I said, <laughs> I'm going to do a story where we find out what was going on. And what you saw in that story was just the first half of it. There were supposedly six more issues. Okay. In which we find out that Galactus, and I think it's been done since, that Galactus actually created the Silver Surfer as his successor. That he knew this would happen. That right. eventually he would 
not be able to contain the energy that he had absorbed. It would drive him mad, that he would have to be destroyed, and that the person who destroyed him would then take his place. Oh, so, so that was... History of the Marvel Universe. I think Mark Wade might have picked up that idea. I think he did. I, well, I had said that. I don't know that Mark would have used my idea because... I mean, it makes sense because, like, that's like you know the father-son thing. Just like it's, oh, you have to go back to those classic things. Yeah, you do. Fathers, sons, exactly. mothers, daughters. Those are things people can relate to. They understand them, and they make for good stories. Right. Because they're timeless. So yeah, no, I, I think that would have been interesting to. to it would have been that. fun to do. Yeah. Um, what happened about it was it, is that at first it was going to be part of a regular, Silver Surfer right. series. And then they decided Silver Surfer wouldn't sell. That what was what would sell was miniseries or series, right. you know, a, a long series, a twelve-issue one. And then they decided that this was a time the Marvel had been sold, and you know, it was like strange financing going on that was not was influencing editorial decisions, but okay. well, we, was completely completely out of our hands. Um, so that then I was told that. No, we would have to be split into six issues and six issues. And then it was like, no, no, you're going to have to do the last six issues and three issues because we don't think... They were trying to do a lot of number ones because number ones, at least right. they would count on to sell. So um, at that point, I said, you know what? This is too big and important a story, uh-huh, right, woman, <laughs> to be you know, put into three issues. So I said, nah, I'll go over and do something else. I don't remember what it was. Which it was it was a good idea, and I'm glad Mark did it. I'm glad somebody of Mark's caliber did it eventually. And I was going to say, I know you've worked on some of the Legends books where you, folks are going back and revisiting storylines. I uh, know. Maybe you'll get a chance to uh, get this miniseries out there. I doubt it because I think it's already been done. Uh, yeah, yeah, so. <laughs> but not by you. Not you by you. Not by me. My own special spin. Did, did, I have, I, I've not, I only, had only heard that it had been done. I had, had never actually read Mark's story. Did he make the Silver Surfer, the new Galactus? It, it was Franklin Richards. Oh, was the okay. One oh, well over. then. Yeah, Franklin became like, he was the Galactus and Galactus was his herald or his is that it or yeah oh, Galactus okay. dies and Franklin all right yeah it's a little different than I would have done it's, it's all right neat, I can though. still do it then right yeah, absolutely. Marvel absolutely ask me anyway. get on it Marvel but yeah thank you so much you've been more than generous with your time we've loved all these stories it's just a pleasure to meet you thank you for all the great work over the years I've often heard you're a class act and and meeting you oh what a it, sweet it thing really to say. is it really is that's really that's really sweet of you wonderful. thank you so much wonderful thanks thank for you. stopping by the last comic show well, that was a good interview. Always like some Louis Simonson. I mean, you know, anyone who had a hand in Inferno and uh, that great crossover where magic starred is got to be <laughs> pretty good. And that's just a drop in the bucket. She's done so many things. Louis Simon was so great, so gracious uh, to give us her time. That was absolutely wonderful. Yeah. And we've got some other wonderful folks right after these commercial breaks. We've got the wonderful interview with Ted Sakura from Hero Tomorrow Comics. Uh, so you'll learn all about that awesome indie publisher, as well as a wonderful interview with Riley Brown, the artist that was uh, behind one of the books that we covered on the last comic shop this time last year, which was uh, Batman Fortnite Zero Points. Guest starring Snake Eyes. It was supposed to be a day at the beach. But for four friends, one wrong road will put them on a direct course to being the main course. Her name is Grandma Hazel. 
A chainsaw wielding psychopathic cannibal. A beast of the backwoods with a body count higher than a bowl of blood spattered scotch mints. From the creators of Pocus Pocus. Grandma Chainsaw. Evil as a perm. Alright, we're here at Baltimore Comic Con and we're talking with Ted Sakura, who is the wonderful author of so many wonderful books over there at Hero Tomorrow Comics. And uh, I know him from Pama, uh, the Undiscovered Animal. I have the first two trades that you uh, that you signed for me back at a, a show in Pittsburgh, as well as a fantastic print with your what ten cent beer night. Absolutely, <laughs> Cleveland-based story. You got to do a ten cent beer night. <laughs> it's great because he's out there on the on the diamond, and all, <laughs> all the drunk-up crowd are running out onto the field to try to attack him. It's wonderful, but that's that's kind of where I wanted to start because uh, one of the things that brought me to your series, and I've talked about it on a blog that I wrote all about your uh, fantastic book there, is how Bronze Age it seems to me. And I'm a guy that loves Bronze Age books, but you're the type of person that does it right. In, in the Apama series, every single issue is like, here's another villain. And that's <laughs> right, how they right. used to do it. That's how you build a rogues gallery, yeah, right? You want yeah. to talk a little bit about that? Was that through your mind? A hundred percent. We weren't really even intending to make a comic book series. What happened is we uh, made a feature film called Hero Tomorrow, which is a dark comedy about a guy who has an idea for a superhero, but he can't get it published. His girlfriend makes him a costume of his own character for Halloween, and he starts running around in it trying to fight crime, but with no superpowers. So... The movie debuted at Comic-Con International in San Diego, 2006, and played film festivals all over the world. And one of the ideas, and it actually sprung from Tony Isabella, creator of Black Lightning. Right. He said, you know, your character in the movie goes over and over about this Apama idea that he's trying to sell. And he goes, there's really nothing like that in comics. You ought to think about doing it as a comic book. Now, to rewind just a spell, Apama, in the, in the movie, he's like, so many great superheroes are creature themed right you know bats wolverine spider-man you know spiders whatever but all the good ones are already taken so okay. he decides what if there's a an animal that's so powerful and stealth it's just never been discovered yet by mankind the humor of the movie is him trying to sell this apama idea to publishers based <laughs> on an animal that doesn't exist you know and it just they're, they're not feeling it so and milo miller who's the co-writer of the movie and apama with me you know we would have never started a comic book with such a weird idea. But because Tony Isabella, you know, and, and others too, said you guys should think about doing a comic, we thought, what if we just did the book that was in our main character's head as if it got published? Oh, yeah. And we did issue one, but, you know, it has nothing to do with the movie other than it's the Apama costume and, and name. But this is about a Hungarian ice cream truck driver on the west side of Cleveland who unlocks the spirit force of the most savage beast mankind has never discovered, the Apama. And he ends up uh, wrecking a, 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 what, a movie <laughs> a movie shot of the Flaming Carrot Yeah. Oh, my gosh, yeah. How yeah, did that come about? Well, when we made the movie, there's a, a recurring comic shop store in the film. And we asked Marvel and DC straight up, can we use your books in this, you know, just have them in the background? And they all said no. Okay. Uh, and so... We said, well, how are we going to do a comic shop with no comics? So we went to conventions, and we met people like Mark Wheatley, Bob Burden, Tony Isabella uh, hooked us up with, uh, you know, Kurt Busiek of Astro City. All these indie people sent us their books to okay. stock our comic shop. So Bob Burden, creator of Flaming Carrot, was one of them. 
And he's a movie guy because he did Mystery Men. Right. I said, what if uh, just for this first issue, Apama just bumbles onto a film set and screws it up? And, and we know all these comic creators now, and we, we love Flaming Carrot. And that was the one that was introduced to us. That we were, I, I mean, I became such a huge fan of Flaming Carrot to the point after Here Tomorrow, we were developing a Flaming Carrot film with Bob. Like, we were working on a script. Wow. Uh, that never happened, obviously. That, that's, that's sad. But, uh, that would have been great. Oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, it was just such a weird, you it know. Is right, right now is the time. Like, Mystery yeah. Men was so ahead of its time a little bit because people would have eaten this up if it would have happened. Well, now. and on the DVD of Mystery Men, you know, in the extras, Flaming Carrot was not chosen for the team because he was deemed too strange to film. And I was just like, oh, give me that. <laughs> I'll show you what's too strange to film. You know, we have a mushroom trip squid scene in our Hero Tomorrow movie. We can do a flaming carrot. Anyway, I digress. So you came up with all these wonderful villains for Apama to fight. Yeah, that was the question, right. Um, so we, we, we have a classic origin story. That's Apama 1. And then when we're like, wow, we really love making comics. You know, it's like uh, a lot less headache, a lot more liberating as a writer. Right. So let's make issue two, and we, we made the first villain inspired by his nemesis friend in the movie, and the lawnmower man is kind of his nickname, a uh, landscaper who kind of stumbles on this corporate job and crashes into the scientific experiment where these alien insects were being experimented on, and he they, they bond with him. <laughs> and then we, you know, when we re- realized we wanted to do this, we are like, all right, well, we were big fans of Silver and Bronze Age, mostly Bronze, but... They introduced Doctor Doom in issue five of the Fantastic Four. So issue five of Apama, we gotta do something extra special. And that's where we introduced Regina. And it was very specifically to be his nemesis. She is this hippie, trippy, psychedelic cult leader who has been waiting 50 years for Apama. And he has no freaking idea why. I mean, our guy drives an ice cream truck. He is so outmatched by her in every way. Issue 6, we introduced the Ruster. Yeah, then we got into uh, issues 10 and 11, where we introduced Tap Dance Killer. And that's based on an old musical I wrote years ago. I had the idea to bring the characters of the musical to life in a Pama. This is such a long, windy road. I, well, I, can't. I, I will say that issue five is, is one of those great issues, especially if you get these in trades, because it's like, I think that's the capstone. That's the last issue in the first trade, yeah, right? Because it goes right. one through five and then six through ten. And uh, that's a great way to finish off that first trade, because to your point, the psychedelic high priestess of Helltown, as it says <laughs> on, the, right. on the opening cover, like that's his baptism of fire. Like he's yeah. not going to survive that. Like, there's and there's that great scene where he's talking with the bear. And <laughs> right. <laughs> it's yeah. It's a really wonderful issue. So, um, but I do want to talk a little bit about the art. I want to know how you uh, hooked up with uh, Benito, because that's another great part of this series. As I talk about all the time, with uh, it being like such a, a throwback to those Bronze Age books. Benito's artwork immediately reminded me of John Boshema. And, and that classic Bronze Age style. How did you uh, meet Benito? A great question. Um, when we decided we were going to do this issue, it one, which really, again, was just a digital comic that was going to be on our movie's website to try to draw people to buy the movie. Right. Which didn't work. Um, we, <laughs> it turned out well for you. <laughs> well, it, it didn't sell movies for us. That's what I was saying. <laughs> uh, we put an ad, I think it was Deviant Arts, I believe it was, and 
you know, we were like this movie company that is doing a comic book spinoff. We got a hundred people from all over the world and amazing artists. But Benito Gallego, when we saw his stuff, we dropped dead in our tracks because it did have that classic feel. Because Milo and I, you know, I, I just don't think you ever really liked stuff quite as much in, in certain ways as what you loved when you were between 11 and 14 yeah. like that the music you know I was into Van Halen I still love Van Halen you know it's, it's something about that era I just wanted to see that and when I saw that wow we can make a book that looks just like the ones we grew up loving and do it in a modern tale though you know we weren't trying to make a spoof which I think is what a lot of things that go back to the Bronze Age do we were like what if comics just evolved completely differently and they right. still look that way Man, he is such a solid storyteller. You know, he lives in Spain, and we'll go around and shoot photos of Cleveland. We kind of scout scenes for him, and we give him scouting photos. So, yeah, you know, going back to what we do is making a film, we, we scout. And he's got the look of Cleveland in such a rich way. And also this European sensibility, though, I just... Uh, I can't say enough about him. I adore the guy. Yeah, and if you do look at it, his layouts are tre tremendous. Uh, there's an opening scene, I think it's an issue one, where they're explaining what a Pama is. And yeah. this, this this weird beast that kind of looks like a cross between, I don't know, like a, a tiger and a, a, a werewolf and a hyena <laughs> and all these other things. It's attacking like every single <laughs> other... It's like elephants and lions and eating bears' face. But it's a wonderful scene because it, it just kind of flows from one picture to the next over this almost one panel spread. It was a heavy lift there. Yeah, that was he. Well, and it, it, what happens is there's a tournament of animals. So Ilya, our high cream truck driver, finds this cave. Well, he gets knocked out in front of it, and he has this dream about the, the day the animals all gathered to determine who would be the king of the beasts. There was this tournament, of course, and um, the Apama wins. <laughs> and as its victory, it says, I don't, I just, I don't, you can call the lion the king or whatever, it doesn't matter to me. I just want my solitude. And that's why Apama is still, to this day, the undiscovered animal. Hence the title. Oh, there you go. Well, let's really quickly pivot to some of the other books. I know that we were just talking about, you have a hot book out there called Bloom. Can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. So yeah, issue five, we introduced the Palmas nemesis, Regina, and she's this big mystery element. We go back to her origin story in Bloom. It's a self-contained four-issue series. It takes place in 1969, simultaneous to Woodstock, not at Woodstock, but they're tapping into the collective consciousness of the event. The quick premise is there is an aspiring comic book creator who goes to a street fair and sees this trippy band and they have this backup singer who's doing these wild dance improvisations during the guitar solos. And after the show, he approaches Regina and he says, hey, I'm doing a comic. I'd love you to pose as my villain. What do you think of that? She thinks it's ridiculous, but she's this hippie who's down for anything and they go into the woods for a photo shoot. He starts painting glyphs all over her body in preparation for the shoot. And she asks, you know, all right, so this is a villain. Are these like satanic or pagan? What is this? He said, no, no, it's just something I saw when I was tripping. I just drew it into my sketchbook. Thought it would look cool on my villain. Now, Ramsey is not lying, um, but once it's on Regina, she, uh, she breaks on through to the other side during this shoot. They get lost in the wow. woods. She wants no part of ever going back or letting him leave. And... Um, 
you start to understand Apama's nemesis on a whole other level. Well, very cool. So yeah, if you've picked up Apama like I have and you want a little more backstory on his nemesis, somebody that's extremely important to that entire series, as I mentioned on the last comic shop, we're all about getting you the next book. Make sure that you're picking up Bloom. It's a four issue. Is it going to be out in a trade, do you feel, at some um, point? Or? At some point it will, but not anytime soon. Okay. I, I, you know, just kind of make things a bit easier on myself. There's enough headaches. Is Tap Dance Killer still doing well for you? Well, it is. In fact, at this show especially, I, it's it, lately Bloom and Tap Dance Killer go neck and neck, you know, and I think they, they trade off on which one sells more. Tap Dance Killer's winning here in Baltimore. Okay. And Tap Dance Killer introduced a heavyweight boxer who becomes a super-powered murderous clown named Punchline, and he's spun into his own series as well. So we got issue one of Punchline going. Look and issue, at that. Issue two is going to be when Punchline and Apama square off. So that's a... a I'm really looking forward to this blast-out fight. Right, and, and and that's, again, another wonderful thing about Hero Tomorrow Comics is, like, everything seems very organic. You know, again, like those old days of Marvel, like where you had one book, you're fantastic for it, was a Palma, and, like, everything's <laughs> right. kind of... Sp- spinning off of that very organically and it's wonderful so you've got a rich universe to pick from in terms of books from hero to hero tomorrow comics so make sure that you're getting out to your local comic shop and picking up some of these great books if you see ted at any cons make sure you come up and say hello he's a great guy and thank you so much for taking some time here at the last comic shop to talk with us of course and may i give a little pitch to our website if anybody absolutely wants to, yeah so uh you go to hero tomorrow.com on all the Instagrams and Twitters and Facebooks, it's just at Hero Tomorrow. Yeah. Or, or myself, Ted Sikora, T-E-D-S-I-K-O-R-A. Oh, there you go. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you. All right, we're here at Baltimore Comic Con with uh, Riley Brown. Hey, how are you guys doing? Yeah, who's been uh, wonderful enough to take some time to talk with all of you out there in Last Comic Shop podcast land. So, Riley, first and foremost, how's your show going? It's great, man. Baltimore Comic Con is one of my favorite conventions. It's fantastic. It's like so many shows are all about, you know, the publishers making their next big announcement or the movie stars or whatever. But this one is really just about the artists and the creators, you know? It's about, like, hanging out with Alan Davis and uh, Walt Simonson and hearing stories about working in for Marvel in the 80s or whatever. So I, I love this show. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So you get to be a little bit of a fanboy as well as, uh, a, as a talent. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, no, I, I dig that totally. It's, it's really nice to come to a show like Baltimore, which is truly still centered around comics. You know, and again, the things we kind of talk about in the last comic shop is it's the gateway to all that other stuff, honestly. Yeah, and absolutely. It, and uh, speaking of that and gateways, uh, the first question I always ask folks is how you got involved with comics in terms of being just a fan. So do you remember what the first comic book you got was? The first comics I got were the Masters of the Universe comics that came with the action figures back in the 80s. Nice! Uh, Alfredo, Those are my favorites yeah, too. Alfredo Alcala and uh, Mark Texiera. Yep. Uh, and that stuff, I I love that. Like, you know, Larry Houston drew for that too. Yep, Larry yeah. Houston. And I actually have a podcast also. And Larry was a guest on ours. He's great. 
That is one of the books I keep by my bed just in case there's a burglar in my house is the Masters Universe mini comics omnibus because it's it. so thick. <laughs> yeah. It's like a kajillion pages. You could yeah. really do some damage. Yeah. But um, yeah, there's so many wonderful people. Uh, with Bruce Tim worked on that yep. series and you had the Masters Universe so mini comics and then that, and then I didn't really so I read that when I was like you know six or seven years old okay and um, then I didn't really get into comics you know like middle school because I always wanted a spider-man comic and this one time we went to the drugstore and I'd finally convinced my dad to buy me a spider-man comic so yeah sure go pick one out and I went over there this is in the mid 80s and I look around and like I see the comics say spider-man there's this guy in like a black suit. I, didn't, I, was like, I was so confused. I thought it was like a knockoff of Spider-Man. Right. And, like, and so I didn't read any Spider-Man comics because the black costume confused me so much. And I was like, this isn't the guy. I don't understand. See, I had the opposite uh, experience because I, I, um, I had an older brother. He was 10 years my senior and he had like that Secret Wars issue and it was on his desk. Yeah. So I saw Spider-Man like standing there in the black costume, and then I started starting seeing him on this newsstands because I was about the same age as yeah. you, and and I was just like, oh no, that's Spider-Man, and that ended up being my Spider-Man was actually Black Suit well, Spider-Man. I, I know a lot of people were like, oh, now he's cooler than ever. You know, you got to read the one with the, with the black suit. But to me, I was just so lost. So then it wasn't until sixth grade. I was at a friend's birthday, and as a party favor, they were giving everyone Marvel comics. Okay. Um, and I got this one issue that it was like a Marvel team up thing from, you know, like early 80s or something. But I had Doctor Doom and Spider-Man and Vision and Scarlet Witch. And I wanted to be an artist. Like I loved drawing and stuff at that point. But I didn't know what kind of art I wanted to do. Okay. You know, maybe newspaper strips, but I thought it'd be hard to come up with a joke every single day. Right. And animation. I knew they had like tons of artists working on any single cartoon and I figured with my luck, my job would probably be animating doors opening and closing, <laughs> which I thought would be so boring. But then... You're the window guy. Yeah, exactly. Um, but then I got uh, this comic and I look and there's just one guy who drew all the cool stuff, all the heroes and the doors opening and closing and like, you know, the robots, the mutants, every, whatever was in there. And I was like, this is it. This is, this is what I'm doing. Okay. So let's, let's, let's fast forward a little bit later. So yeah. like now you're, you've got that bug and you're just like, I want to be a comic book artist. Uh, how did you, you can translate your love of comic books as a fan into a comic books as a career? You know, I went to college for illustration at VCU in Richmond, Virginia. And while I was there, me and friends just started, you know, doing our own self-published anthologies and stuff like that. Okay. Uh, Odd God Press, but you know, uh, you can probably still find them in some quarter bin somewhere and like, you know. Some ash cans? Yeah, in like Northern Virginia somewhere. That's very cool. Um, and uh, uh, my buddy, Pat Godfrey actually bought the comic store that we shopped at in Richmond, uh, which is now Velocity Comics. Okay. So he probably has some copies. If you want to get like the very first cool, I might have to stop down to Velocity yeah. Comics and see. Yeah. They, do you have any original Riley Brown? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and so, but we did that. Uh, I had this uh, character I drew called Orath the Intergalactic Caveman. Very and, cool. Uh, uh, but I, after I graduated, I just started you know, going to comic conventions and showing my portfolio off. And 
It took about a year. I got in a portfolio review line for Marvel, met John Barber, who was an editor over there. Uh-huh. And he was like, oh, I like your stuff. You have a card? I'll stay in touch. And then a week later, I get a phone call and he's, you know, it's John and he's looking for someone to draw the 2005 holiday special. Very cool. Yeah. That was pretty much it. Nice. That is awesome. And then just from there, kind of, kind of snowballed or? Uh, well, more or less. What no one really talks about is that when you break into comics, you have to keep breaking into comics. You know? <laughs> so like, I got that first job and I was like, I'm in. And then like, I don't hear anything for like maybe three or four months from right. I was like, oh no. <laughs> you got any more work for me? Yeah, exactly. And they were like, yeah, oh yeah, Riley, we like your stuff. Uh, uh, you know, we're all booked up right now, but uh, try back later. I was like, oh no. So, Well, um, one book that we want to talk about uh, on yeah. this interview is uh, Batman Fortnite Zero Point. Yes. Because we covered it on the last comic shop. As some of you might know, last December, we covered this book as part of our Panel Pal series. You know, our series of episodes trying to get young folks into comics. We know that Fortnite, huge video game among the young folks. Batman is also a very popular character. And, I, and, I, and, and you've heard just from both me and Riley that one of the first comic books we got into was licensed comic books, right? With the Masters of the Universe. Yep. This, those uh, licensed comic books can be a gateway to, to getting into comics. So I want to talk about this. Uh, so you work with Christos Gage. Yes. Uh, he was the writer. When it comes to this, I mean, I know that I originally picked this up and I was like, all right, I've got to read it because it's panel pals or whatever. But I really enjoyed that series. For a book that was about a video game starring Batman, there was some deep stuff going on in that book, especially issue two with Catwoman and Batman and them having to make the choice who was going to go back to the real world and Batman decided to stay behind. It was really touching. Can you talk a little about this project? Yeah, absolutely. That was one of the things, you know, when they first presented it to me, I was kind of like, uh, you know, I know Fortnite is huge. There's going to be a lot of fans for it, but these licensed books, like, you know, usually there's just a headache of getting approval for this and that. And it kind of makes the stories these sort of nothing fluff pieces. But they were like, no, 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 like Donald Mustard who created Fortnite is like hands-on involved with this. Christos Gage has a killer script. They sent me like the breakdown of the story and everything. And I was like, this is actually pretty good. And it's not, it's not just some random piece of Fortnite merchandise. It's like, this is a really good contribution to the Batman mythos. You know? Oh yeah. Cause it comes, the Batman Catwoman story is like kind of a set, you know, that's like the centerpiece of the whole storyline. That's what it all revolves around. And it happened pretty much right after their marriage didn't happen or right. part or whatever. And so this is them getting back together again, but they don't have a memory of any of it. So, yes. So there are some heartbreaking scenes knowing like, like, oh, this is them back together, but they don't know who each other are, you know, meet each other over and over again, and then die in each other's arms over and over again. Yes, it is. It's so surreal and like yeah. almost existential in some ways. I, I can't gush enough about it. Like if you haven't read it, it's a really great book and uh, you, it's really great art in there. I know that the towards the end of issue six, you get that awesome spread of like the the Batman Catwoman relationship over yeah. the years. Tell us about drawing that and like the inspiration for all of that. That I, I really liked that page. I mean, that was kind of like the you know, the gut punch to the whole series. So without any spoilers, there's one page where inevitably I think they based on the concept, 
Batman gets his memories back. <laughs> and uh, so it's Batman and Catwoman getting their memories back and remembering their whole history together. So I want to do this montage of their whole history. So I start with like a scene from the first time they met when he like accidentally, you know, quote unquote, lets her escape from, <laughs> you know, the ship he and Robin have caught her on. And then I show, you know, her in like the with the bad guys from the 60s TV show to kind of show her like crime career and then show her in Batman fight and, you know, have the, the proposal and the whole thing. You know, it was fun to explore that whole history and like find what, uh, what, what are the key moments mm-hmm. in their history. Right. It always amazes me when, you, when artists like yourself do those kind of collages with the, all the... I, I always uh, like to ask, like, because, again, you see things like that with, like, George Perez, where he's, like, got so many characters oh, on yeah. a page. You know what I mean? But it's similar to you. I mean, like, there's a lot going on. And, and so, like, when you when you sat down to say, that's what I'm going to do, like, where did you start? Did you did you do it kind of chronologically? You just started in the one corner and it, make your way around? It or kind of, yeah. I mean, it goes chronologically. It kind of snakes its way across the page, I think, in kind of like an S-type thing. But... It, Visually, there's a lot happening on that page. It has to be, like, you want to have a lot of images that kind of bleed into each other, but also make it clear. You know, you don't want it to just look like a clutter. Right. You want it to have a flow to it. And so I wanted to make sure it was chronological. Like, I, the script just says, and then they get their memories back, show this somehow. Right. And so uh, Christos mentioned to... He really wanted to have Batman reading the Dear John letter because that was like their narration of the wedding issue, but you don't actually see it happen. So he's like, okay, this is where we actually see him reading the letter. Right. And then, but I really wanted to make sure I got a scene from their first meeting in there because that's one of my favorite Batman scenes. It's so ridiculous and it's like, if you've never read it, it's in, I think, Batman number one, (laughs) way back in the 40s. Yes, yeah. And um, yeah, it's such a cute little scene. But I wanted to make sure I got something of that in there. And then I wanted to show her progression over the years. So I wanted to show how her costume changed, like, or how both their characters' costumes changed. You know, Batman history and continuity is so weird. That, right. Like, it's so, like, you know, that I was like, well, I want to bring in other, not just comics. Like, yeah. This is, like, their whole thing. They've always been an item. And then, like, doing research, like, okay, what are pivotal scenes? And there's this one scene in the 80s where... Catwoman's trying to kill him and I'm like oh that's like the main picture on the page yeah in that like 80s like purple dress she's wearing right well it's an incredible image and and another incredible image that you get in this particular book is Batman versus Snake Eyes oh yeah you seem to be a kid of the 80s as well so like how, how was that smashing those toys together that was that's one of those moments like as a comic artist where like you read the script and think it's going to be pretty cool and then when you start drawing it you're like oh my god I'm actually drawing this <laughs> uh, were you worried about messing up you're like these are characters oh. that are like so they're so Dude. iconic like yeah. I gotta do I, this right I mean I literally I took my son's action figures his Batman and his Snake Eyes action figure was posing them and stuff make sure I got all the details right and like using that as reference like on my table and it felt like I was just a kid again playing with my toys it, it is a awesome. great great issue um, uh, well, the way that came about is uh, uh, Donald Mustard was saying he's like okay issue number three we're gonna have a big fight we want to have a guest appearance we don't know who it's gonna be yet so when you're planning the story somehow don't put anything issue number three because <laughs> we just want to find somebody who isn't Fortnite isn't a DC and who's awesome who Batman has never fought before right 
and so that was what he was able to he was able to get snake eyes and it was just awesome yeah no know? that was that was a perfect pick yeah that was a perfect pick <laughs> yeah. for batman skill set and that was i loved how everybody in the fortnite universe just stood yeah. still watching yeah. these two <laughs> It was great. Yeah, well, let's two ultimate ninjas. Let's yeah. talk about some uh, some work that's coming up from you just really quickly in the next year in 2023. Is there anything you can talk about that will be coming out in the stores that people um, should check out? Well, let's see. We got Outrage, which is a creator-owned series I do with Fabian Nicieza. Okay. I'm the co-creator of Deadpool, and I collaborate on a lot of things at Marvel. Yeah. Been doing Outrage on Webtoons. You know, check out new episodes for free on Webtoon every week. But also, we've got the first volume of the printed edition is coming out. Uh, it's coming out, I believe, November of 2022. So it's, okay. And then I'm working on another project that I don't think has been announced yet. Okay. So, I mean, I, 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 it hasn't exactly been top secret, but I don't want to, like, That's announce all something right. before, I, <laughs> before That is official. okay. No, no so. problem at all. Well... You know what, Riley? Thank you so much for taking some time to talk with everybody on The Last Comic Shop. It was really great to get to know you as an artist, uh, to kind of gush about some some comic books I know Last Comic Shop listeners have gotten opportunity to enjoy on our podcast, and it was a pleasure talking with you. Thank you. This was fun. Uh, real quickly, uh, where can they find you on social media? Uh, you can find me on Instagram at Riley underscore Brown, and Twitter, it's the same thing. And um, I've got my own podcast, Hypothetical Island, and we put out a new episode every week. Do it with my former art studio roommate, George O'Connor, who's another comic artist. It's a lot of fun. We talk to a lot of comics creators and, yeah, just very goofy podcast. But it's, it's, a a, it's a good podcast. <laughs> Sounds good. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you. All I want to say about Batman Fortnite Zero Point is I wish that they would do the crossover in the toys as well because – the Fortnite toys are some of the nicest toys that are actually made for kids these days. It'd be nice if the Batman had that sort of, you know, similar build quality as opposed to the dreck that whoever makes Batman toys is putting out. Hasbro, who makes Batman toys? Oh, man. So, okay. Batman currently is being put out uh, simultaneously by Spin Master at the uh, four inch line. And then they have a five and a half inch line of superpowers done by McFarlane Toys. And there's also a seven-inch line of DC superheroes from McFarlane Toys that has tons of bat characters. And that's not discounting any of the other Batman toys that come out at any given time. So there's a lot. But no, I think J.A. has a point. I think that's the closest uh, costume that we could get to, like, that Zack Snyder duster Batman, right? Because, like, it's a very similar look in that uh, Batman's uh, Fortnite Zero Point. It do He doesn't have the actual coat, but it's kind of like got the weird pouches, places, and... Although I will stick up, the Spin Master line is a fun line for kids. The, the DC Heroes, that is a good one, and you could take that and put that in with your Fortnite guys, but those Fortnite 4-inch toys... They are spectacular. You get like close to 30 points of articulation on each one. Yeah, Very there you good. go. I mean, who doesn't want to pose Batman punching a guy with a banana for a hit? <laughs> <laughs> I think I think Chad does that anyways. With some I was going to say, I do and I have. <laughs> who makes the, uh, the line of uh, DC characters that come with the comic and the really, really tiny figure? It's like uh, thimble-sized punchers or panel punchers or whatever. Those are McFarlane again. Yeah, those those stink. Like <laughs> 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 those are real. It's cool that they bring a comic book, but I I mean compared to like ten years ago when they were coming out with like that two pack uh, at Hasbro with like two Marvel figures and a comic book, and they were again. 
three and three quarters size. Like this is bullshit that they give you just a little tiny. It's like a juice glass version of a figure. It's it's like a sip. I can only tell you that I haven't bought any of them. They're not action figures. They're little tiny statues. Well, one thing that we hope that you buy every single week is uh, our pleas to come back to the last comic shop again. We have several more of these interview shows with some wonderful folks coming up, uh, whether it was uh, Jim Starland, uh, Jerry Ordway, Frank Cho, Mark Schultz, a variety of folks coming up on future shows. And so that we hope you come back and you can do that by rate reviewing and subscribing out at www.lastcomicshoppodcast.com. It's a terrific place where you can find all the links to everything, including some awesome videos that we cut at Baltimore Comic Con. If you haven't checked those out, some of the things that Chad got signed, Jerry Ordway's, I think was my favorite. I mean, he drew this Superman face on your completely white blank zero hour cover, which I was I won't lie, I was a little jealous of. Yeah, I don't buy a lot of, like, they make the blank cover comics. I'm like, who wants that? But they published this one that had the blank cover. I'm like, oh, okay. I'll take that for the same reason. (laughs) And if you want to find things like the polls we talked about earlier, Golden Age covers of Tuckian at Night, just general comic book conversation and what we're picking up uh, each week at the comic shops, you can find us on the social medias at Last Comic Shop. That includes Twitter. That includes Instagram, and that includes YouTube. Oh, and Facebook that we update occasionally. <laughs> no, it's kind of cool over at YouTube now because they've given us the handle at Last Comic Shop. Like, oh, it's almost like a Twitter feed on YouTube where you can just leave like posts and you know thoughts and everything. So who knows what might happen in future? But you might find us uh, interacting a little bit more on our YouTube channel. So make sure you're subscribing to that. Okay. And once you've done uh, all of the socials, come back to our website where we've got a link to our merch store. If you want to buy a present for your significant other, including the special Christmas variety version of our last comic shop logo with the Santa Claus and the reindeer. Maybe next year we'll do Chevy chase in the corner. I don't know. I can only hope! Could we put a little RV next to the shop and somebody trying to, like, empty a chemical toilet into a... <laughs> oh, jeez. Anyway, if you're looking for recommendations this week, our recommendations are go out there and find books from Louise Simonson. Go out there and find books from Ted Sikora. And go out and find some awesome work from Riley Brown as well. These are some hardworking creators that were out there at Baltimore Comic Con giving us the time of day. And they're out there making wonderful comics for you available at your local comic shop. So check them out. All right. And until next week, I was the host of the most, Andy Larson. I was joined by Chad Smith and J.A. Scott. And we hope that you come back. Until then, stay safe, stay festive. And remember that uh, if there's an elf on your shelf, you got to move them. Like, evidently, it's like a serious thing. Like, it's why I don't do Elf on the Shelf at my house, because, like, I don't have that kind of commitment. There's only so much Elf and Mischief I can come up with. I don't think I can handle the whole holiday season. (laughs) And, J.A., no Elf on the Shelf for you? No Elf on the Shelf, no. (laughs) It would be terrible in the Philippines, because you have to start back in September. Yes, the Elf would be here for a fourth of the year. (laughs) And that's a little bit too much Elf. (laughs) 
the last comic shop was. A 2022 Black Angus production.